for Thursday, November 19th, 2020. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, SARS, MERS, and COVID-19. Three epidemics in as many decades, all caused by different coronaviruses. The SARS epidemic said we need to look at all these emerging viruses. The two epidemics since then point out that coronaviruses in particular are viruses we better pay attention to. Dr. Stanley Perlman, a virologist at the University of Iowa, joins me to discuss what we've learned about SARS-CoV-2, the virus that's fueling the current pandemic. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. In late January, Dr. Stanley Perlman, a virologist at the University of Iowa, penned a piece for the New England Journal of Medicine called Another Decade, Another Coronavirus. In that editorial, he wrote about what little we knew at the time about SARS-CoV-2. That's the name of the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Well, we have learned a lot since then, and Dr. Perlman joins me now to discuss some of it. Dr. Perlman, thanks for talking with me. My pleasure. Back in February, you wrote a piece for the New England Journal of Medicine called Another Decade, Another Coronavirus, in which you laid out what we knew about this particular virus at the time. It wasn't even called SARS-CoV-2 at that point, so this was really early in the pandemic. And I want to use some of uh, what you wrote in that piece as kind of a framework for our conversation today, because you laid out some really key questions you were hoping that we would learn about this novel virus as time went on. The first thing I want to talk about, you laid out as kind of the most important thing for us to figure out about this new virus, which was the extent of transmission between people and the kinds of diseases that this coronavirus causes. So that was back in February. Where are we now if we want to think about those very two specific things that we've learned about this coronavirus? I think that what we've learned from the questions that you asked we, we learned that this virus is really unlike the one that caused SARS or the one that caused MERS in that it really is easily transmittable from person to person. And that's the most important thing we learned. And because that occurred, all bets were off on what was going to happen when we tried to compare it to SARS and MERS. Because SARS and MERS, people were contagious after they were really sick because they only really had virus in their lungs. This virus, people are contagious very quickly because the virus is growing in their 
nose and upper airways. So that was something we didn't know in January or February. And we learned very, very quickly that this was a very contagious virus. Another thing um, that that you wrote in this piece, again, so back in late January, um, really early days here, is that transmission, we thought at the time, seemed to occur primarily from people with recognized illness. I mean, we've learned so much since then about the asymptomatic spread of, of this virus. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so even more than that, at the time, we didn't know that people were going to have this upper airway infection. So for SARS and MERS, which was the only experience we had, we knew that people were contagious when they developed symptoms because the symptoms were all in the lungs. Now people can develop symptoms consistent with a nose infection or a throat infection, and they're contagious, or highly contagious at that time. So that's really different than SARS or MERS. And that's one of the reasons that the pandemic has spread so wildly into so many places and to so many people. That's the key difference. If you only have an infection in the lungs and you need to get a virus growing in the lungs at a substantial amount, then you're already sick. So we can identify you as being sick or one can identify that person as being sick. But if you're going to have an upper airway infection, then it's harder to tell that they're sick and they're not very sick and they can still spread the virus. Is there some particular attribute of this virus that that makes it spread in people who don't have symptoms? No, I think it's not the structure. I think that it's infecting cells in your nose and throat, in your nasopharynx, as it's called. Uh, And I think that's what's making it different. And it's really right now a, a little bit of a mystery as to why this virus infects the nasopharynx and the SARS coronavirus and the one that causes the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, the MERS coronavirus, don't. They do not infect the upper airway, certainly not to the same extent as this virus does. One of the other things that you kind of highlighted early on that you would be interested to know is, is this virus spread primarily through larger droplets, smaller droplets, aerosols, fomites, infected surfaces? I mean, where are we now with what we've learned about how this virus is spread? Because this is something that really seems to have evolved over time. I agree with you completely. It has evolved. Initially, we thought it was going to be mostly large droplets and contact. And in fact, those are still very important. But we know the spread that's really impacted the pandemic in the U.S. and elsewhere is spread by smaller droplets that can persist in the air for longer and are particularly a problem in places where there's no ventilation or poor ventilation. They just hang there. So people who have a high amount of virus in a nasal pharynx and may not be particularly sick may be secreting lots of these little droplets. If you're outside, they're going to blow away immediately. But inside, they can be a problem. And that's what we're seeing with the pandemic, that there is spread like this. In the very beginning, we were very concerned about fomite spread, spread on surfaces. We think that this is less important now. Is it zero? Probably not. So all the cleaning of banisters and all that probably didn't prevent that many cases. And then the other kind is this spread could occur during from the feces or some other body fluid. Again, not much evidence for that, a possibility, but not much evidence for that happening. One of the early questions that you highlighted is the the spectrum of clinical disease uh, that this particular coronavirus causes. This is something, honestly, I, I feel like I heard a lot more about early on. There were early indications that this virus attacked the lungs. Then maybe there were questions about this virus attacking the heart, maybe even causing neurologic symptoms. What do we know about really the, the, the body systems that are most vulnerable here to, to this virus? 
The organs that you listed are still considered main targets. The part that's changed since uh, early on is we assumed that this virus was actually actively infecting these organs, whether it be the lungs or the heart or the blood vessels. There's certainly pathological changes in all these places, but we have had a lot of trouble proving that virus is actually found in those places. So this could mean the virus was there and has already left and there's still some damage, or it could mean the virus was never there and all the effects we're seeing are really because the host in fighting the virus has actually caused this uh, bystander damage, as it's called. People who are maybe hospitalized with a severe course of disease, it's not necessarily that their body is overrun with this particular coronavirus. That's right. They could be. Some people don't handle the virus well, but other people, the reaction to the virus is what's causing disease. So you make these soluble proteins, as they're called, cytokines that attack the virus and you have immune cells enter the site of infection, the lungs or the blood vessels or whatever, this host response itself is actually what causes disease. And is this another thing that we see in other coronaviruses, um, the ones that cause SARS and MERS? It was postulated, certainly in both those diseases, we were worried that there was an excessive host response. And in fact, even in SARS, very early on, people started to use corticosteroids to treat SARS. And the problem there is it didn't work because they also, they were doing two things that weren't right. They didn't know this, of course. They were treating too early, so there's still lots of virus around. And they were trying to prevent a virus problem by treating with a drug called ribavirin. And ribavirin is a great drug for treating some viruses, but it doesn't work against coronaviruses. So basically, the idea was they were treating these people with something that would stop the virus and at the same time something that stopped the immune response. Instead, because the antivirus agent didn't work, they were basically just stopping the immune response. So people who had mild disease now got more severe disease because they weren't handling the virus. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead talking today with Dr. Stanley Perlman. He's a virologist at the University of Iowa. We're talking about what we've learned over the last several months about SARS-CoV-2. That's the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Another one of these key uh, questions that you laid out um, early, early days was getting a sense of how the virus will adapt and change over time to the human host. This is a zoonotic virus with its origin in animals. So what have we learned about that? I mean, we think about certain viruses that are common, the flu virus kind of mutating, changing from year to year, from season to season. Is that something that that we're seeing with SARS-CoV-2? Almost certainly not. So because this virus is so intensively studied, we have lots and lots of sequence data that's telling us what the RNA of the virus looks like. But there's been very, very, very little evidence of any change to infect people better. This virus, for whatever reason, and this is really an important question, why is this virus so good at affecting people? Even from the early stages, there's been almost no change. There's one change in the surface protein that's important for entering cells that's been very, very carefully and thoroughly studied. And what it does, it may make the virus slightly more transmissible, but there's no evidence that the virus is either becoming more strong, more virulent, or weaker, more attenuated. This virus was amazingly well adapted to infect people. And this, I think, gets to one of these other questions that you mentioned uh, early on, was identifying the actual animal origins of SARS-CoV-2 Earlier on when this piece was published, there was this sense that the virus was transmitted from bats to humans. Have we learned anything more about that since that time? 
not as much as I would have liked. We certainly confirmed, well, we think we confirmed that it's a bat virus at some point, but what we don't know is how it got into human populations because there was talk a few months ago about it being in a kind of anteater called the pangolin, and that may still be an important part of the transmission process. But anyway, you look at it, the, we have not found the exact virus. We found close relatives, but not very, very close relatives in any animals that we've looked at. And we don't really know how the virus got into human populations. Why is that something that's important to know? Well, I think it's important for two reasons. In January, I thought it was important because I didn't know if this virus was going to infect people and then disappear. So we wanted to make sure that, it, that we knew where it came from so it didn't reappear at some time in the future. That was obviously, in retrospect, something I didn't have to think about at all because it's not disappearing. But you want to know where did this virus come from because you can look at those animals, those sources, and see is there a potential for another pandemic virus in those animals that we need to worry about. And then the second thing is that by knowing where it comes from, uh, we could see how prevalent it is in the community at large, which comes back to the first point, I guess. But if we know where it comes from, we're much better able to handle uh, future epidemics and either reoccurrence of this virus if it ever happens to go away. We've had some news recently, maybe some good news on two fronts that I want to talk to you about. So the, the first is antibodies and, and the kind of immune protection someone who's infected with this virus has once that infection is over. Where are we on that particular topic and how much someone who has SARS-CoV-2 infection has further protection from it? That's an important question. The information we have now is not completely in yet. So there were several studies that suggested that we made people who were infected with the virus made antibodies, but the antibodies waned. They went away with time. More recent studies and other studies show, no, no, the antibody is really persistent and it'll last a long time. And then we have T cells, which are the other part of the immune system that's important in having a really good immune response. And some studies said those go away with time. Others say they're more stable. And from our work with various coronaviruses in the past, I think that it could be that if you have mild disease or you're asymptomatic, you may have antibody and T-cell responses that wane with time, so over months to a few years. If you have more severe disease, they may last much longer. That would be consistent with what we've seen in other coronaviruses. So I have to say there's other papers that show that people with severe disease actually have less good immune responses. So all the information's not in yet. This obviously is really important for vaccines. We would like to know what's protection in the natural infection and see if vaccines induce a similar kind of protection. And we have had some news on that front recently, two early releases of data from Moderna and Pfizer. They're both developing uh, vaccines for this particular coronavirus that they say their early results show are upwards of 90% effective. I mean, what do you make of that news and how is this relevant to what we've talked about here in this conversation, the, the kind of particular qualities that this virus has? Yeah, so I don't know that it tells us much about the quality of the virus, but it's certainly good news. Uh, having this many people respond and be protected from community-acquired uh, COVID-19 is really great. So the things we want to know, of course, is we want to know if there's any long-term safety issues and only time will tell. We want to know how long the immune response will last Again, only time will tell. If, if the vaccine's behaving like 
the way I think a mild disease might, immunity might be shorter lived. If it behaves like a more severe infection, then immunity might last for a long time and we wouldn't need to get revaccinated. Or if we did need to get revaccinated, it would be not on a yearly basis, but much less frequently. By definition, anything that we won't find out for a long time, we can't tell about because we haven't had the disease around for a long time. This pandemic has affected most of our lives in 2020, but this virus was first identified in 2019. I have just always been under the assumption that there has to be a lot of people sick with something for it to come to the attention of the medical community. What is your best sense of when in 2019 this virus started spreading? How bad do things have to get to kind of make a signal to be separated from the noise where health officials say, we have something new here? Yeah, so it's a good question because the same the same um, questions were asked during the HIV epidemic, which appeared, but we, we knew that it appeared actually before uh, it was first noticed. So this one, the best guess we have is that there were some people who were sick in, in Wuhan before the cases became obvious, so maybe mid-December. But there's also a possibility, since we don't know where this virus really came from, because it's so well adapted to people, that it actually was present in people before then, and either not causing much disease or causing disease like you described, but wasn't recognized as being different from the flu or other causes of respiratory disease. So I think that the best guesses now are still late 2019. As we get more information, this may change, but that's our best guess right now. So now that you've kind of gone through the process of talking through this with me, I mean, what's your reflection on how far our knowledge has come about this particular virus? And and maybe what else do you think we still need to know? Yeah, so I think that we've learned a lot. I don't want to be too um, cavalier about it, but we still have a lot to learn because all the questions that we were asking early on, some of them are still not completely answered and we need to know the answers, you know, as, as we've talked about. And then the immunity right now, of course, is really important as more and more people have become infected and as more and more people will get the vaccine. We want to make sure that they give as long lasting immunity as possible because we want the vaccine and the immunological response. We want to do two things. The first is we want to protect people from severe disease. So obviously what's killing people is the severe disease. They get a very severe lung infection and then they die. So we want a vaccine or a prior infection to prevent that. But the second part is that people can have mild disease and be very contagious. And we want a vaccine or any prior infection to be able to prevent that spread. So these are things that we learned early on are important to know about. And we're learning a little bit about them. But a lot of virus research, it never is ending because there's always new questions to ask as we learn more and more about the virus. And particularly if this one remains as a a very important human pathogen, then we're going to want to know some of those details because there might be other ways to treat the virus, to prevent the infection. And there's still as many things we need to know to do that. I also have not been able to stop thinking about the title of this piece you wrote for the New England Journal of Medicine, Another Decade, Another Coronavirus. There is inevitability that I read into there. Are coronaviruses of various types just going to continue to be a part of our lives? You kind of say this is the third one we've had in as many decades. I mean, can we expect more and more of this in the future? That's the worry. 
you know, SARS came and it went away. And then MERS has been in camels in the Middle East, but hasn't really caused that big a deal in people. So here we have a SARS-like virus that's a huge deal. I worry at this point that there's a MERS-like virus lurking somewhere, not in camels, not necessarily in the Middle East, but a virus with the same capability to grow better in people from the get-go. There's also other SARS-like viruses that may not have immunological overlap with the SARS or SARS-CoV-2 virus. So it also come into human populations and we find basically people that haven't seen the virus before. So yep, this is certainly a wake-up call that coronaviruses are really important. The SARS epidemic said we need to look at all these emerging viruses. The two epidemics since then point out that coronaviruses in particular are viruses we better pay attention to. Dr. Stanley Perlman is a virologist at the University of Iowa. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, That's where you can also leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate and thanks.